Welcome back to Innovation Big and Small. Hi, Jim. Hi, how are you today, Squirrel? I'm okay. So I think we're going to talk about something called the business model, and I'm not sure whether it's a triangle or a pyramid, but it's got three sides, and it sounds interesting, and you know all about it. So why don't you yeah, tell us yeah. what that is, and uh, I'll jump in and say whether us uh, uh, crazy startup folk, whether we do some of the same things or not. What's it, what's it for to start with? So basically the idea, and this again is large companies. I don't know how applicable or important it is in a small company, but it's a systematic way of creating a business model. So let's assume you've got a compelling value proposition. Mm -hmm. You've figured out what you want to offer. It's about how do you get there? And uh, part of the reason for doing it systematically is that in a large company, uh, new business models are scary. And so there can be a lot of uh, resistance. And so part of it is about doing that sort of match back to the, uh, to the corporate world, providing the information that will uh, maybe make people more willing to accept the risk of a new business model. Yeah, but us startup folk, we're, we're sometimes too risk-friendly, so we would do better to, to do a little thinking ahead of time. So I'm really interested to hear what it is and, and uh, see which bits we already apply and which bits maybe we should. Go ahead. So, so uh, what do you start with? What's, what's the top or the bottom or where do you go? Yeah, we'll start at the bottom. And the bottom is the broad part of the pyramid because that's where the risk is greater. As you climb mm. up or you uh, go to the top of the pyramid, the risk declines. Got so um, at the very bottom, it's just making sure you understand in a quantitative way, even if it may be ranges, uh, what the customer value that you're creating is. I've been surprised at how many people I've talked to who are trying to build a business model and they're even trying to sell a, a value proposition. They're in the market, but they don't know how much value they're creating. And, uh, and the result of that is either that they can't sell it or that they leave a lot of money on the tape or they get lucky, I guess. So the first step is really understanding customer value. And I'll just I'll butt in, I'll butt in there just for a second, yeah, and I'll say too, yeah. customer value is super important to a startup, but tends not to be terribly well quantified, and especially not to start with. The the best a startup will do, and and it's the sort of thing that shows up on a VC pitch deck, is to to estimate what people might be willing to pay. Maybe there's a um, uh, an initial uh, rollout or a pilot or a, a beta version or something, and they've got a few paying customers, and but um, it's pretty well known that the numbers in those spreadsheets and graphs and so on are pretty uh, pretty much all fantasy. And I have the feeling that in a large company, you're, you're going to do a lot more diligence and a lot more research to be sure that it's right. Is that right? Well, we did. And I think the reason is because they, in a large company, people will say it, that we don't believe it. You know, what's your evidence? Why did you get that? And if you can't go back and say, we visited these eight customers and we can't tell you how much they'll pay, but we can tell you that they're going to save between eight hundred and a thousand dollars a year per truck or something like that. That yep. makes a big difference because then you know if you have any headroom. Exactly, and a startup will will try to do that kind of research, but I think everybody knows it's kind of made up because the expectation is that the startup will change its model quite a few times. The yeah. the, the VC will typically be, or even the angel investor, if it's that, that early, would be saying something like, "Well, I, I want to be interested. I want to be in this space. I think these are smart people. I think they will figure out something because there's a clear gap between the completely manual process people have today, and I'm sure that." Uh, AI can solve this problem at some point. These guys seem clever. They have something that works. It, they'll get into the market and they'll figure it out. So much, much more risk-friendly, so much less analysis. But the same 
purpose, yeah. the same the same base of the pyramid is very important. It's just done with much uh, higher risk appetite. Yeah, that's very interesting. So, so I think even for a startup, I think there's a a big risk that if you don't spend some time on it, that you'll just leave money on the table. I think I I mentioned in a, in another podcast episode, I worked with a company that makes uh, uh, drones that design uh, solar systems and uh, solar panels for roofs. They figure out where they go, how to place them, how to get maximum. Insulation. And they send the drone up to, to measure the, the height and the, the do all the measurements. Yeah. The measurement. yep. mm -hmm. And when we did the calculation for them, when I, I did the calculation with them, we found that their business model was capturing 3% of the value from their best customers. So then, you know, you can't just go back and say, I'm going to increase my price, but you have to go, you have to figure out if you want to scale, you got to figure out how you can capture more of the value you create. Sure. So that's the that's the first step. And then the, the next is to look at a, a few very different business models. Just force yourself to look at a few different business models, because the the first one is probably obvious and not going to maximize your value. So you uh, so that's the, the thing. Now, there are a limited number of, of archetypes. I mentioned Adrian Slowatsky before. I think he's he's identified. Uh, a couple of dozen, uh, maybe with the digital revolution, there are 40. So the reason that they're important is because there are only so many ways that you can put all the pieces together and create a really compelling business model. And the ones that survive are the ones that are powerful. So find out what other people are doing. Look at those. So the next step is archetypes. Maybe it'd be fun to talk more and sort of compare some of the archetypes you've worked with versus some of the ones I have in you know large uh manufacturing firms and again the the rigor in a startup is going to be much less but what the business model is matters a heck of a lot and the the vc or the angel who's investing and certainly the startup team themselves will want to, to work those numbers very carefully and understand at least what their model says they can do what would be an example of a business model is that is that a, a spreadsheet with a bunch of numbers in it is it a definition of like here's our channel and here's our route to market and uh, here's what our pricing will look like, but what, what, what very briefly would be the elements of an archetype? Yeah, so I think you're, uh, you've got the elements right to me. So, so in the end, you are gonna model it on a spreadsheet and, and see how it plays out over time. But in the end, it's not just the elements like you could put on a canvas, it's how they interrelate with one another and how they, uh, how they work together to create you know, what at Amazon they call the flywheel, the momentum that gives you growth. If you think about the elements separately, you say, well, we'll do, we'll go to this through this channel and we'll have this sort of price point on our product and so forth. You, you'll get it sort of right, but you want to think about um, the dynamics of it as well. So some of the business models like servitization, uh, taking a product and selling it as a service, is a business model and it has a whole lot of different elements that a manufacturer normally would have. We got to do much more on this, Jim. I want to hear all about these. I don't know what servitization is, but that sounds fascinating. Yeah, I think it's the sort good. of thing that we're probably doing in startups without knowing we're doing it. So that, that let, may let, be, let's come yeah. back to this one, put a pin in that. Let's, let's do more. Yeah. Okay. So, so and another archetype, if people are probably familiar with the growth share matrix, if they ever took an MBA course and that's where, you know, it's, it's just market share wins. It used mm -hmm. to be the way, manufacturing companies won. Whoever mm. had the most market share could grow down the experience curve, learn more, lower their prices. And that was a self-fulfilling thing. It doesn't seem to be as true anymore. 
but that's what an archetype is. It's not just a configuration, it's a strategic approach. Very interesting. Okay, let's do a lot more on that. What what else we got in the in the pyramid? We're running out, we running out of time. We got to make sure our, our listeners we get hear, the whole, hear yes. the whole pyramid. Okay. So the third element is for each of them to try to identify the risks. And there are, uh, you know, we all have execution risks. Will the technology work? Will we be able to get the costs where we want to get them? Can we meet the window? But there are also uh, what Ron Adner calls co-innovation risks and adoption chain risks. That means that to go to market, you often need other people to win with you. And uh, it may be that one of your partners is providing a critical component. Will they meet their schedule and deliverables? How can you make sure they do? It may be that you need a partner to help you go to market. It may just be a channel, but it may be someone who is delivering a complementary good and your good is no good without it. So you identify those risks and try to, and that, yeah, you know, I think that this is something, and Ron Adner says this, people don't usually do, and then they get surprised and it's not like they couldn't have figured it out. Um, it just takes time. So then, only then do you, we sit down and do the spreadsheet model. And you try to, but this spreadsheet model. That's the top of the pyramid. That's after the risk. No, we're not there yet. No, we're not there yet. Not there yet. We're near. But so you build the model. But the models that I think are most helpful are ones where you take the unknowns and you make the unknown explicit. So you put a range in, and then you run it a Monte Carlo simulation. You see where the biggest is it profitable or likely to be or not, Mm -hmm. and then you know where you're what you have to focus on. Do you have to focus on product cost or getting the channel acquisition, getting the customer acquisition costs down or the support costs down. Then you take those areas and focus on, that's where you focus your business experiments. So we've talked about that before too. And the, start, the startup tends to just go for the business experiments right away. So yeah, it right, tends right. to start at the top of the pyramid here, near the top and go business experiments first. Let's see what happens and see what sticks to the wall and then go uh, reverse engineer. Uh, all the other bits. What's the business model? Uh, how do the numbers look, and so on? And I, I guess I, I'd be very interested to learn more about that because it's a. Then that must require a lot of iteration and probably a lot of waste in the in the lean uh, sense of the word. Well, but I'd argue there's a fair amount of waste in trying to model it way up front because there's a lot that you don't know. So if you can do your experiments well so that you learn quickly and and you get some folks who think that what you're doing is interesting but maybe not a full fit and not perfectly there they can tell you a lot of the bits and they can fill it in yeah that i mean that's the whole point of the experiments is to fill in the unknowns i I think it is important your point is you don't want to spend months going through these steps you want to do your best customer value pick a few archetypes and study them over a period of a couple of weeks yeah do your modeling and risk analysis and then then the then the experiments are what i call with market they're not yet in the market. Now, for you guys, it may be much more often that you're in the market. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Let's just start selling it. See if anybody buys it. Put it on the web. Right. See if anybody clicks. That, that will create heart attacks in, in larger companies. I'm, I'm sure. The classic startup thing to do is to set up your landing page, and you put a button on it that says buy after you've put in all the bits that say why you would want to buy. And after people click buy, there's a nice message that says, sorry, we don't actually have this yet, but thank you very much for participating in our market research. Sign up here to be one of the first to get X, whatever X is. And uh, that's remarkably successful. I've had quite a number of clients do that kind of thing. And um, they get tremendous amounts of information very quickly. And I think it would give, as you say, many heart attacks in the boardroom if, uh, if you were to try that in a large company. 
we've we've done some of it, but it's much more curtailed and much more studied uh, because of the the concerns. And you have a brand risk too. I mean, in a startup, you know, my 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 startup Squirrel Year does uh, something goofy, nobody really cares. Goodyear does something goofy, well, you know, you might hit the front pages. Right, right, yeah. And then the, so then and then we move from there into uh, in market experimentation, what I would call incubation. So incubation's at the top of the pyramid. Um, during incubation, you're hoping you're learning not only how to make the business work and profitable, but also how to scale it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you're trying to do that at the same time in a, in a startup. You're trying to yep. learn not just how to make it profitable, but how to make it uh, scalable and sustainable at scale. Although often a startup will, will start without trying to discover that really at first. It, it, they'll want to have some confidence, some kind of convincing story about why it could scale someday. But one yeah. of the ways to be very successful, actually, I'll link in the in the show notes. There's a very good article by Paul Graham, one of the um, founders of the Y Combinator uh, startup um, uh, accelerator um, and a very clever guy. Uh, he he uh, talks about uh, one of the best things to do is things that don't scale because that's what gets you into the market very quickly and gets you lots of learning from real customers. Oh, but um, a, a common thing to, I have a, I have a great example of a, a startup that did that. Um, they used uh, a kind of a souped up version of Google Sheets and um, uh, Zapier, which is a way of connecting various bits together. Um, and they connected lots of things to their um, spreadsheet, their air table that they, they had lots of things in. And they had just this clever guy. They never hired any programmers. They just figured out how to get all these little pieces together. And they just kept saying, well, you know, when we get to something we can't fit together this way, we'll hire a programmer. They never hired a programmer. Then they came to me and they were trying to raise money. And they said, Squirrel, what should we call this? They're trying to figure <laughs> out, like, well, how should we should describe this to investors? Because we never hired any. We have this tech and it's not in any program. And I thought about it for a while and I said, it's serverless technology, which is a new, exciting, <laughs> wonderful thing that they, because they don't have to have any servers. And they put it, they got their series A, and then they hired some programmers and then they actually yeah, yeah. a system, but they were able to do something that absolutely would never scale. You know, you could not run that for thousands. They were in property. So you could right. run it for thousands of buildings, but you could run it for five buildings or even 10 buildings. And it was just fine. Yeah, that's great. Uh, so, so that's a very successful method in startups. Yeah. In startups and, and in incubation, uh, we would sometimes do things that weren't scalable, but I think not as uh um, you know, as readily perhaps as what you're talking about. But we did try to get quick prototypes that would help us learn as fast as possible. Uh, but, it, you know, I guess it's, it just comes down to that difference in how much risk can you take where. But anyway, so that's it's a systematic uh, way of developing a business model. And, uh, and, you know, we can talk more about the parts and maybe how you do them. Definitely uh, should. I think the two we, we should definitely, let's put them on the list, is archetypes and business experiments, and um, in particular, um, doing things that don't scale. Because I've got several more such stories, and I think it sounds like you've done some of those sorts of things. Let's come back to those two for sure, and maybe some of the others if listeners are interested. Because uh, I like the the model, it sounds very helpful, much more rigorous and rigid than um, than a startup would do, but you really do follow all those steps. Startup just might start at the top of the period and go down instead of at the bottom going up. Well, that's, and that's iterate a these, lot and iterate an awful lot. Go up and down the pyramid quite a, quite often. But that's a great model, so very helpful to hear about. 
Cool. Well, if listeners want to hear more about the business model pyramid, uh, check the show notes. We'll have some links. Uh, and of course, you can get in touch with us anytime. Have a look in the show notes and you'll find us on the web and Twitter and other places. Happy to hear from you. And we like it when you hit the subscribe button so that you can come back and listen to us next time when we'll probably talk about more from the business model pyramid. Thanks, Jim. Thank you.